Welcome to Lifehouse Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. This week, David Thomas concludes his series on effective discipleship. In the last five weeks, David has issued a series of challenges. He has boiled discipleship down to its essence and he has confronted the misconceptions that plague the church of today. During these weeks, David has actually been very busy. He's also nearing completion of his first ebook, Reaching Discipleship Normal. In this book, David encapsulates the teaching of his sermons over the last five weeks, as well as adding new content and fresh insight. This book will be available from our website, www.life-house.net, within the next few weeks. So keep checking back for another handy reference tool. If you'd like to contact us, you can join our fan page on Facebook by searching for Lifehouse Church in Brisbane. We'd also love to hear feedback on our sermon series and our spiritual warfare series. So send an email to info, I-N-F-O, at life-house.net or leave a comment in the iTunes window. Thanks for listening. Here's David. Part five. All right, we're going we're gonna to now wrap it up um, and we're going to end off the series of discipleship. So today it's about... Having your faith tested. That's what discipleship is all about, having your faith tested. I've got some phenomenal verses of Scripture here for you. Um, I've got a long wrap-up to do, so I'm going to get straight into it. First verse of Scripture is Luke. Now, this is how it's going to go. Uh, I've got two points, and then I'm going to wrap up the series. So when I say wrap up the series, don't go, whoo. That's going to finish quick. No, it's wrapping up the series, not the sermon. All right, and then I'll wrap up the sermon later on, a lot later. Luke chapter 8, 22 to 25. Now, what I want you to do, specifically with these two passages of Scripture, I want you to imagine them. You have to imagine these two passages. Try and put yourself into the story with what is happening. So one day Jesus says to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So just picture that. Jesus comes there, and they all pile into this boat. Professional sailors, professional fishermen, off they go. As they set sail, Jesus goes to the front. He falls asleep. A squall comes down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped, and there was a great danger. And the disciples woke him up saying, Master, Master, we are drowning. And he gets up, he rebukes the wind, raging storm, the storm subsides, all was calm. He turns to his disciples. Now, all the disciples, now picture the disciples now. You know, they're drenched. The boat is like sitting this far, just above the waterline. They're like half in water themselves. And their like, eyes are big like this. They've just woken Jesus up. Jesus has just gone, woke you. He's just stop, 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 stop. And he looks at them. And then he says, where's your faith? Imagine the disciples there now, okay? In fear and amazement, they ask one another, who is this? He commands even the winds, the water, and the waves, and they obey him. Now, one comment on that before I go and comment on different aspects of that. They got it wrong. They asked the wrong question. Now, I'm not saying I would have been there asking the right question. You know, I would have been probably as terrified, as drenched, you know, and as amazed at what Jesus had just done, but they asked the wrong question. They should have said, actually, where is my faith? All right. The essence of the sermon series comes down to this. What moves you to normal discipleship? Now, there's going to come a time in your life as a disciple. If it hasn't already come, it is coming, and it's a continuous coming where the Holy Spirit is going to come next to you, and He's going to say to you, let us go to the other side. And so the question of this series is this, what moves me into that position of discipleship maturity to launch and last week I said two things that are irrevocable, two things that are going to take place within your life. And it's all up to you. 
and I've yet to have someone come back at me because I challenged you to challenge me on the statement, and these are the two things. An irrevocable decision has to be made by you. And secondly, once you've made that irrevocable decision, you have to commit to the decision, no matter what. And you'll find that, I won't mention it much, but you'll find that theme permeate this whole message as I wrap it up. So the minute, the minute you step into this discipleship mode, the minute this irrevocable decision gets made in your life, two things are going to happen. The first thing that's going to happen is Jesus is going to come to you and he is going to test your faith. Let us go over to the other side. We know the story. And these disciples have been called to a higher level of awareness. A higher level of commitment. You see, Jesus knows what is coming your way. Because Jesus sees you complete. And he is calling you into that completeness. Into that discipleship end game, becoming like him. He's calling you to move forward. He's calling you as an individual to come together with other individuals to move forward and commit. And so they launched out. One thing you'll find about Lifehouse Church is that we're a church that launches out into the deep ocean waters. Ready or not, we launch. And there will come a time in your faith there will come a time in your life where Jesus is going to come into your life and he's going to call you and he's going to say, come, let us go to the other side and then he's going to launch you, ready or not. The problem with that, if you have the mentality of someone who wants to go onto the passenger cruise liner and think you're going to go around the pond or if you're if you, someone that buys a little ticket to go on one of these little excursions on a battleship where you're just going to go travel around the, the, the harbor, then you are in for a surprise because the storm and the, and the rough seas, they are there. They will come. It's out there. So Christianity is not this deck chair existence. Christianity is, a, is an existence that's lived on the backdrop of a universal war. So Jesus comes along. He leads you to salvation, and you fall in love with Jesus, and everything is hunky-dory, and then Jesus says, hey, let's go to the other side. Oh, I've been called. And in the boat you go, and then Jesus suddenly falls asleep. And the storm hits, and you scream in there, My God, save me! Up the wave, down the wave. Where are you, Lord? Have you been there? Have you been in that position? Oh, God, where are you in the circumstance? And he seems asleep. And he is. He's not sleeping on the job. He's not taking a rest. He's not having a smoker. You see, the next time Jesus activates is when he comes to sort the Antichrist out, his army, consigns him to eternal lake of fire, puts the devil in a thousand years of bondage, and rules the planet for a thousand years. That's, his that's what he's, he's going to do next. At the moment, he's resting. Do you know why? His job is done. Oh, is that what it meant on the cross when he says it is finished? Yes. He actually says what he means and means what he says. His job's done. And so here we are on the, uh, in this boat, <laughs> screaming our heads off because of the circumstance, thinking Jesus is far away from us, but Jesus is saying, listen, it's finished. I've given you the job to do. Jesus is saying, it is finished. I've given you the authority to do the job. Jesus is saying, it is finished. I've given you the power to do the job. And that's why he says to the disciples, where's your faith? You've got the authority. You've got the power. Couldn't you calm the storm yourself? See, they asked the wrong question. So there's a storm. Listen carefully. 
for your discipleship to be proven discipleship, for your faith to be proven faith. It has to be tested. Heard a story from a young man that's in this church. He'll recognize the story. We were talking about him. He's a, he's a, he's a young teacher, and uh, he's, he, he had this class come, and they had to do a whole lot of assignments, and some of the students didn't do the assignments because it was part of their marking, uh, for their mark. And I said to them, did you fail? Look, did you fail the student? And he says, no. I said, why not? You should have failed him. We're not allowed to fail him. I think to myself, how's that student going to know whether he's any good at that subject? How's that student going to know if, he's any, if, if that's the subject he wants to take all the way through his life, if that's a passion of his? How are they going to know? Has your faith been tested lately? When you decide to get on the battleship, when you decide to stay on the battleship when it gets launched out, when you decide to throw caution to the wind and just take whatever comes your way, by serving Christ, after he's given you the job, with all his authority, with all his power, how have you managed thus far? Now, it's okay to be like the disciples and go and wake Jesus up and scream and say, help me. Because you know something? Jesus is in the boat. So they came to him and they woke him up. Jesus is in the boat. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. When he launches you out, he is there with you. And he is there enjoying your journey together with him, extending the kingdom of God. So he sorts out the situation for the disciples. He turns to them and he says, where's your faith? Where is your faith? And in fear and amazement, without faith, there is fear. It's the opposite. You look at that through circumstance and your own eyes, you begin to live in fear. You look at that through God's eyes, you begin to live in faith. It comes down to this. This is, this is for me, I, I'm a simple guy. I like things simple, plain. That's me. And it comes down to this. I believe God in the circumstance or I don't believe God in the circumstance. It's that simple. Either God is able or God is not able. So the first thing, when you make these two decisions, irrevocable decision to serve and an irrevocable decision to commit to that decision to serve God, one, your faith is going to be tested. Two, you will be required to minister Okay, you will be required to do something. So we go to the story in Matthew chapter 14, verse 13 to 16, and Jesus comes into this boat. He's in a quiet place. Suddenly all the people around find out that Jesus is in this quiet little cove there, and they all stream out, and there's nothing around them. There's no shops. There's no anything around them. They're out in the wilderness. And he has compassion on these crowds, and so he starts to minister to them. And it gets dark, and it's starting to go evening, and the disciples come to him and say, Lord, these people have to go home. There's nowhere around for them to sleep or to get food. This is a remote place, the disciples say, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. You know what Jesus does? does he turns to them, and he says to the disciples, they do not need to go away. You Give them something to eat. Whoa. Excuse me. Jesus probably said, you heard me. As this world starts to descend in the cesspool of sin, the whirlpool of degradation, individual lives, family lives are going to get destroyed and are being destroyed around us. 
And as these lines get destroyed, the, the results of that destruction start to float up onto the sea that we are sailing in. And Jesus is standing there, and these people begin to look at Jesus, and he says, if you come to me, I will save you. And they reach out their hand, and he picks up their hand, he reaches them out of the, that ocean, and then he turns to who? And he activates an Isaiah 61 ministry. And he says to you, do you love me? Please feed this lamb. And the Isaiah 61 ministry gets activated. And what are we going to say to him? Lord, send them away because we have nothing to give them. Jesus says, you feed them. You give them something to eat. Two things are going to happen when you get activated as disciple, disciples. Your faith will get tested through circumstance, through the storm. And in the storm and in the circumstance, Jesus is going to turn to you while everything seems to be going crazy and he's going to say to you, you feed my sheep. And you're going to be screaming, my God, the storm's going to... Where's your faith? I have nothing to give them. Incorrect. You give them something to eat. And when you reach that level of awareness, of understanding, you step onto that platform of discipleship, and life begins. Now, let me conclude the series. Okay? Very, very briefly, to understand what, this is my own personal opinion, and this, this is how I, I, I assess things. There's three things that I do, and I go for three things, gold, silver, and precious stones. Now, to reach that gold, silver, and precious stones and to try and hit that mark and not produce wood, hay, and stubble for the Lord, I, I, I look at my life in three areas. Area Level one is service. Okay? So when I come to church, I serve the church. The, that service is not my ministry. What I'm doing now is not service to the church. Service to the church is what happened when I had to wake up at a very, very unearthly hour this morning and come and put the chairs out because it's my month on duty with my other brothers in here. You know, and we had to come out. That service to the church. And that, I don't consider that anywhere near gold, silver, or precious stones. That service, that's to, that's to get us ready to perform our ministry. Level one ministry is Matthew 22 and Matthew 28. That's level one ministry. That is for everyone. Whoever you are, whatever your position, whatever your function in the body of Christ, level one ministry, Matthew 22, Matthew 28. Love the Lord your God with everything in you and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the command. The commission, go to the other side and feed my sheep. Discipleship. That's level one. Level two ministry is understanding my specific function and then coming before the Lord and saying, Lord, here am I. What is it that you want me to do in your kingdom and get released? That's level two ministry. Okay. When we were worshiping and that, some of those songs we were singing, you know, how great is, thou, how great is our God and it reminded me of this scripture that I'm going to describe to you. It's about Isaiah, and it's one of the most powerful for me, one of the most powerful scriptures I've ever seen in the Bible, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 to 8. You need to go and study that scripture. It's incredible. Isaiah gets this vision. He sees God. He, he, he gets a glimpse of the very core of God's heaven, the throne. And it's so beautifully written, I love it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. 
seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim, each with six wings. Two covered their face, two covered their feet. Two they were flying with, and they called to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And all the sound of their voices and the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So he has this guy, he gets a vision of God, and he gets in and he starts to see this. Can you imagine getting next to a, I don't know, something that holds power, and you can actually sense it in the atmosphere. It's alive. Don't, you know, like, whoa, I've got to watch what I touch here, because if I touch something wrong, it's gonna, that, that's going to go through me. And here, here Isaiah goes in, and he sees this, and there is God. And within God himself, all the power of the universe is wrapped in, and he controls it, and he releases it to, to, to run the universe. And, and, and the angels are worshiping him, and everything is shaking. And here Isaiah sees this, and what is his response? He starts to scream and wail and cry. He's not hearing anything. He's just like, oh, God, you know, I'm a man of unclean lips. I've seen you, and I'm going to die now. And one of those angels has to actually stop worshiping God, come to him with a coal. I like the way they put it. I can visualize something different. If it was me, it would have been different. The angel would have probably come with me and just, like, gagged me just to stop me from talking. Woe to me, I, I cry. I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst the people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. This is what I want you to hear. Once he settled down, he then heard the voice of God. All right? Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Isaiah said, here am I, Lord, send me. What is your answer? Matthew 28, Jesus said, go. Go. What is your answer? I was confronted with that decision, and I'm going to share that testimony with you a little bit later on. But over the years, I've tried my best to try and think like God thinks and to try and live my life like God wants me to live my life. And so what I've trained myself in doing is I've trained myself in becoming a generational activator. I don't think of my life in terms of I've got so many years left. I think of my life in terms of I've got so many years left to activate a thousand-year generation blessing. Exodus 20, you shall not make yourself an image in, the, in any form in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for their sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation for those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. I'm going to show you three, I'm going to tell you the story of three men. Three men. Three ordinary men. Who because of what they did, you sit here today as part of their thousand-year legacy, thousand-generation legacy. Now, you know that when I came to Australia, I discovered I love Australia. I love the Australian people, most of them. Um, and, but there were three things that really bugged me. I've shared this with you over the pulpit quite a few times. But there are three things about Austra of Queensland that I don't like. Number one, I'm not allowed to do my hobby here. My hobby is to keep a, a fish pond where you have these Japanese koi. They are banned in Queensland. Very upset about that because an hour's drive south, if I was living in New South Wales, I'd be able to have them. So go figure. So I'm not allowed to have them. Uh, yeah, so, okay. With everything else that's going on in Queensland, I can live with that. 
The second thing that bugs me is I found when I came here is that everyone seems to want to drive up the exhaust pipe of my vehicle. All right. I just don't like that. I just, I've, I've got this primal, <laughs> irrational thing about me in a, in a car. You know, it's just like my bubble, my space. <laughs> and you drive up my rear, it's like, I don't know, it does something to me. <laughs> I'm working on it. Ask Carolyn. I, I actually don't slam on brakes anymore. <laughs> so so I, I'm working on that aspect of it. And I'm getting used to that aspect and I'm trying to deal with that. The third thing was something that... It was always in the back of my mind, but it didn't get activated until I got to Queensland and until I started working for the government in the courts. I became, I just disliked lawyers. I suddenly became irrationally against lawyers. Just didn't like them whatsoever. So you know what the Lord does? The Lord does some strange things to you. So you must be careful of what you don't like and what you verbally say you don't like because he just, he gets to show you certain things. So here's the story of three lawyers who've changed my life for the better, okay? The first lawyer I want to talk to you about, and what I want you to picture in your mind is this, here, and I want you to say this every time in your mind when you, when you hear me read about these guys, here is an ordinary person who stepped into the hands of an extraordinary God. Go and think of the story and just remember that. Burn that into your head. Here is an ordinary man who stepped into the hands of an extraordinary God and activated something that today you sit here in this church as a beneficiary of what that person did. Law student number one, Martin Luther. 2nd of July, 1505, a young man, he's riding a, 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 an animal, a, a donkey or a horse, and he's on the road to Ephrat in Germany, and there's a lightning storm, and a lightning bolt hits him, he's about 21 years of age, a lightning bolt strikes the ground next to him, gets knocked off the horse, he starts panicking, oh God, and he makes a vow, if you save me, I will serve you. His life gets spared, so instead of continuing his law practice, he keeps his word and he joins the monastery, the Augustan Monastery in Ephraim. In 1507, two years after this experience, he becomes a priest. The year later, he goes into the University of Wittenberg and he starts to actually teach in that university. Four years later, in 1512, he earns his doctorate degree of theology. He continues teaching, and in the year 1515, he starts to study the book of Romans and the book of Galatians, and he starts to write out some sermons on the book of Romans and the book of Galatians. At that time, the church was corrupt because they were selling indulgences. In other words, they had this practice where if you wanted to get out of hell, you just had to come to the church, pay some money, and they'd get a, a, a papal document called an indulgence. That meant that you could pitch up to hell, show them this paper, and then you will get transferred straight to heaven. And they bought it. And the church got rich. And so Martin Luther now is in the church, and he's writing about Romans, and suddenly this is what Martin Luther says. At last, meditating day and night by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt as if I'd been entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. Three months after that, he sat down and he wrote 95 bullet points on a piece of paper. He went to the castle door in... in, 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 in um, I think it's Wittenberg, and he nailed the 95 points on the door, and that created or started or activated the Reformation. And today, you sit here because a 21-year-old said, Lord, if you save my life, 
I will serve you no matter what. Ordinary lawyer, law student. That's it. A few centuries before, we have another young lawyer who has a similar experience. So listen to me. He's on a horse too. And there's a flash of light. So what is the moral of the story? Be careful of horses and God. All right? So he's riding on this horse to Damascus, and suddenly there's a light flash. He falls on the ground. He goes blind, and he hears God speaking to him. Saul, Saul, why are you out to get me? Who are you? I am Jesus. And Jesus gives him instruction. He goes in to the, to the city of Damascus. God activates Ananias, sends him to Saul. What happens? Verse 19 of Acts chapter 9, Saul spent a few days getting acquainted with the disciples of Damascus, but, when the right, but, but then went right to work, wasting no time preaching in the meetings, uh, meeting places that Jesus was the Son of God. That lawyer Paul went on and did three mission trips. And on one of those mission trips, he wrote a letter. A letter. Not a book. A letter. To a group of people he'd never been to. That lived in a city called Rome. And a couple of hundred years later, a young law student sat and read that same book. Ordinary person. And today, you sit here as a legacy of Paul activating a thousand-year generation blessing. And on Martin Luther activating a thousand-year generation. That was 800 years ago. Paul approximately 2,000 years ago. And today, you sit here because an ordinary 21-year-old heard God and said, here I am. Send me. Now I'm going to give you the third story. 400 years ago. Or oh, yeah, approximately. 300 years ago. Count Nicholas Ludwig Zinzendorf. Another lawyer. You see God's... <laughs> God and... <laughs> yeah. I'm very careful what I say to God now. <laughs> I'm very careful of saying what I don't like as well. You know. Anyway, Paul, 2,000 years. Luther, 800. I'll Nicky here, 300. His father died while he's six weeks old. His godfather was a man who greatly influenced him. He was a, he was a, um, a priest. In 1695... His godfather got persecuted because of, of, of um, his theological standing and got fired from the theological faculty of, of um, Wittenberg, where Martin Luther was. His grandmother influenced him in a powerful way. So as a teenager, now listen to me, as a teenager, he starts to grow up and he forms this society called the Order of the Mustard Seed. He's a teenager, okay? The problem with this order is it goes through the noble houses of Europe at that time, and all these, like even the king of Denmark became a member of the society, but it was very secret. No one knew much about it. It was like word of mouth. And so what happened was, let me, let me tell you about the order of the mustard seed. It's a fantastic story. Um, 2 Chronicles 15, 12 was one of their scriptures. It says they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, for the, the, uh, the Lord the God, uh, their God of their fathers with all their hearts and with all their souls. So part of, part of this order was, was a military officer in the Prussian army, and he died mysteriously in Amsterdam. And um, they discovered this, these secret writings on this, on this officer, strange symbols, and there was a gold ring with Greek inscriptions 
inscriptions and, and, and rules written in, in formal German. And what happened was it started to spread and, and, and rumors started to develop. Uh, 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 one of the pre- pre- professors tried to discredit this and there was this big like, oh, it's like equivalent to the Illuminati suddenly being discovered in your midst there. And, and this was shock horror going through all the noble houses of, of, of Europe at the time. And, and it, it got so bad that he actually had to come out and show everyone what actually this order of the mustard seed was. And I'll come back to that story in a few minutes. But let's go back to Nicholas. What was his Rubicon moment? So he, he was a young man. He was a count, grew up in a noble house, had money. And so at the end of his schooling, he took a gap year. So gap year is nothing new. They, they had these grand tours of Europe as rites of passage for, for these young nobles in, that, in those days. And so he visited this museum in Dusseldorf, and he got in front of this painting called, uh, where is it here, Domenico Feta, by, by that, by that uh, painter, and it was called Echo Homo, Behold the Man. And this painting was about Jesus on the cross. And underneath this painting were these words, this have I done for you. Now what will you do for me? And this young count just stood transfixed there, watching this and reading this, and bang, he had his moment. He had his moment. He vowed that day to dedicate his life to Jesus. Irrevocable decision. So what does he do? He gets tested and he uses what's in his hand. There was a group in Germany, and at 22 years of age, the count goes and buys some land for this group, and he puts them on there. And he says, yeah, here's some land for you. So here's some land for your church. They establish a village on that land, and a church on that land. And um, one of the pastors of the church is one of his friends. And so they begin holding services, little church on the little land in Germany. And suddenly, God starts to move. And revival starts to break out. So Zinzendorf moves into the area as well and starts to get involved within this community. But the problem is, all hell breaks loose in this community. All strife starts to take place in this community. And, 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 and even, I mean, everyone gets accused. The leaders get accused. Zinzendorf gets accused. The pastor gets accused. They were, they were even accused of being the beast and the false prophet. That's how bad the, 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 the fight began. And so it reached a point in that community where Zinzendorf stands up and delivers a three-hour sermon. So you're lucky. All right? I just, not that bad. And, he, and his sermon was entitled, The Blessedness of Christian Unity. And as he delivers the sermon, the Spirit of God breaks out. Repentance starts to take place. Sorrow starts to take place. And God starts to actually activate people. And in the summer following that revival in 1727, the Holy Spirit begins to move and God starts to bring revival. And 14 members start to create 14 Moravians start to create a prayer meeting. And a movement begins. And the power of God begins to descend. And that, ex- that small congregation from there begins to change the planet, begins to change the world. And so at the end of the month of this movement, 24 men and 24 women make a decision. They will begin to pray 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they'll not stop. That prayer meeting lasted 100 years. One of their key passages was out of Leviticus chapter 6, the fire must keep burning on the altar continuously, it must not go out. 
And from that fire, from that prayer meeting, from that revival, things just started to spread around the globe. You know, we often credit the mission movement to Carey, but Carey credits the mission movement to this group here. And they impacted from Greenland to South Africa, from the West Indies to Europe. You know, the church has been so bound up with its theology and messed up with its theology. Zinzendorf was so far advanced in his theology back in the 16th century that we are only scratching what he activated back then right now in this church. I mean, he allowed women to preach and lead back then. Today, you sit here as an inheritor of this man's legacy because I can guarantee I will trace through church history the activation of the Australian church, the South African church, back through to these guys, back through to Martin Luther, back through to Paul the Apostle, back through to his listening to the Holy Spirit when he said, we're going to go to Asia, and the Holy Spirit said, no, you're going to go to Greece and activate Europe. So the legacy begins with one man, Jesus Christ. And he passes it on to another man and to another woman and another man and another woman until today we are sitting here and we have the legacy in our hands. If you go and look at the Order of the Mustard Seed website, you will see that these guys live by three rules. And they ask themselves this three, these three questions every single day. How can I be true to Christ today? How can I be kind to people today? How can I play my part in taking the gospel to the nations today? An ordinary young teenager. I can remember my moment. Now, what, what, what did he think? Did he, did he have this vision of the future in his mind? No. He just knew what was happening today. I've declared, I've declared over this pulpit that this church is going to reach the nations. It's going to reach Australia. It's going to impact the nations. It's going to reach up to China through the South, Southeast Asia. We're going to impact the message. We're going to impact the gospel Impact the kingdom with the message of the gospel. I'm going to die trying that. I will never give up. And I'm going to raise a legacy to continue that job. And if I ever get to the point where I finish this job, that means my vision has been too small. My legacy needs to keep it going. You are the next generation. Your children are the next generation. Your grandchildren are the next generation. And God willing, if he tarries and he gives me the time, I hope to see your great -grand your, my great-grandchildren, your grandchildren, activate in ministry, imparting legacy. You see, as a young man of 17 years of age, I'd finished school. I had six months before I was activated into military service. I was sitting on a midnight service on the 1st of the 1st, 1980. My uncle was preaching. A man you probably would never meet until you get to heaven. A man called Clyde Thomas. I don't know what he was preaching about. But I sat there listening to that sermon at midnight. And I stood up and I made an irrevocable decision. And I said to the Lord, I don't know, again, be careful what you say. I said to the Lord, I don't care what I do. I want to serve you even if it means cleaning toilets. And to this day, I sweep possum poo every time I'm on duty here. Well, no, now, now they've, got that, they've removed the possums. <laughs> Be careful what you ask. All right, I'm going to end the sermon now.
in the book of Acts, chapter 28, verse 28 to 31, the last two verses of Acts, Luke writes, I want you to hear the words. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And the story closes with Paul. But I want to tell you something now. Me, I believe the book of Acts has not been closed. The chapter on Paul's life was closed. The book of Acts is not finished because you have a chapter in the book of Acts called David's chapter or called Chris's chapter or called this one's chapter or Joe's chapter. And in that chapter is a record of what you have done since you've heard the words, who will go? Who will I send? This book will only be closed. The book of Acts will only be closed, I believe, at this point in time. Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The dead were judged according to what they had done in, as recorded in the books. There's two books in the Bible that are not closed. Acts and Hebrews chapter 11. God's Hall of Fame. God's Hall of Fame, if you go and read Hebrews 11, is about ordinary men and women stepping into the hands of an extraordinary God. Just think about the people in the Bible, ordinary, ordinary men and women. Abraham, God comes to him and says, I want you to emigrate. And so he leaves everything. Man, I can witness with Abraham. Esther, beautiful young girl. Esther, you have to go and tell the king something is wrong. If I go, I will die. Yes. Are you listening? Ordinary men and women flawed but authentic in the hands of an extraordinary God. Some of you might be a group of, belong in a group of unknown disciples. No one will know about you outside of this church. But you might be a disciple that is a disciple that belongs to and starts and activates and enhances and develops a church like the church of Antioch. How many members of the church of Antioch do you know by name? Probably about five. But what about the rest of them? Those unknown church members, you sit here today because they said to Paul, Barnabas, go. We release you to do the work of the kingdom and we will support you while you go. Ordinary. Unknown prophets, unknown disciples who send out apostolic teams. What's your story? What is your story to the Southland of the Holy Spirit? Have you had your Rubicon moment? Have you had your lightning experience? Have you stood before the painting of Jesus Christ crucified and, and, and read the caption? Have you sat and listened to a sermon by a pastor that you probably never remember again or, or you will or whatever and you've heard the voice of the Lord and you've presented yourself before the Lord And the Lord says to you, 
who will I send? The difference between you and a Paul-like person or an Isaiah or a Ruth or an Esther is the answer to that question. So many sit in the church today, no kingdom vision. They have no vision, they have no purpose, they have no understanding of their ministry. They barely get to work as in, in a service capacity, let alone level one ministry. They don't even realize that there's a level two ministry. And as the legacy gets passed down to them, the chain gets stopped, the chain gets broken. But I say to you today, if you are listening to this message, it's your time now. Will you bow your heads? I want to pray for you. Matthew 24, 14, Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Are you going to be the person that stands up today and says, Lord, send me? Are you going to be the person that stands up today and says, Lord, help me to identify that person and support them in the sending so that this gospel will reach that last nation so that you can come? The voice of the Lord is calling out to you right now. Whom shall I send? And who will go from us? You come from a royal line. You come from a godly heritage of ordinary people who have stepped into the hands of an extraordinary God. That is your heritage. What is your legacy? Father, I pray you will burn these words into their hearts. And I pray that you will create within them a space in time where they will listen to what you have to say to them. Without any interference, where they can hear and make their decision to irrevocably decide. I commit them to you now, Lord. In Jesus' name. God bless you.